Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated, and if you will, just join me in this short moment of prayer. Father God, we just ask that you will open up our hearts as we open your word. Father, that we will learn from Jesus as our good teacher And Lord, that we will learn more and more about our need for him. Father, we love you, and we just pray that this time will be effective for your glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as you can tell, the cold is back, and it's here to stay for a little while. So uh, it's Texas fault, and it's weather. So I blame all of you for making it like this. Um, But hopefully next week we'll be completely cleared out, fleshed out, whatever gross image you want to have of that. So, um, temptation happens in real time, doesn't it? In the heat of the moment. Oftentimes, the progression from temptation to sin happens in a matter of seconds, and we're not even really sure when temptation ends and sin begins. But let's just suppose for a second that we could slow down time, and we could do a play-by-play of, of how temptation finds its footing um, what would we discover? Now, as a pastor and as a sinner myself, I have observed a lot of behind-the-scenes factors that help explain why sin has such ease in, in getting a footing into our lives. Think of how often you have heard or someone else has said something like this. It was a moment of weakness. I was just tired, and I didn't have the will to fight it. I was all alone, and I felt certain no one would know or find out. I've been a fairly decent person, and I deserve to be happy once in a while. It really didn't seem like that big of a deal at the moment. It was just a small sin compared to other sins, and besides, no one got hurt. It's rationale like this that keeps us in our sin, and had Jesus used such rationale, humanity would have remained in slavery to their sin. As it is, Jesus overcame all of these factors in his battle with the tempter. He was alone, he was physically weak, he was hungry, he was tired, who knows, he might have even had a cold, right? And he still, with all of these factors, defeated all sin from the smallest to the greatest and proved himself to be the Messiah, 
the promised king, the servant king, whose righteousness and suffering would bring salvation to God's people. In this way, Jesus is the better Adam, he's the better David, and he's the true king of righteousness over whom sin has no power. Now, in the last section, Matthew told of Jesus' baptism and God's subsequent declaration that Jesus was his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. By merging ideas from both Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1, God declared Jesus to be the messianic son, the king, and yet also the suffering servant who would die for mankind's unrighteousness and who would sacrificially give himself up to make many righteous. He was setting up a paradigm by which we may understand Jesus' person and work. After this declaration, the Spirit rushed upon Jesus. And then Matthew 4 progresses to the next stage of the narrative in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now this is a strange province, isn't it? The Spirit came upon Jesus to bring him to the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. I think I've got a picture of that wilderness somewhere, if you want to throw that up there. That's what the wilderness looked like. Spirit coming upon him in order to bring him to that, so that he could be tempted by Satan. Why in the world would the Spirit of God do such a thing? Surely it was not God's will for Jesus to be tempted by Satan. Surely it was not God's will for his son to suffer in such a crazy place like that. And yet, there's more going on under the surface than might initially appear. First, remember that Jesus is reliving and fulfilling Israel's history. Israel, God's firstborn son, was brought out of Egypt, baptized into the Red Sea, and then led into the wilderness for what reason? To be tested. They stayed there for 40 years. So now Jesus retraces their steps, and he too comes to the wilderness to be tested for 40 days and 40 nights. Once again, Jesus is stepping into the gap that sinful humanity was unable to fill. God's own people, when they were led into the wilderness, fell to temptation and left righteousness undone. The fact that that most of Jesus' answers to Satan in this text come from Deuteronomy show that he understands himself to be someone who stands in Israel's place, to be someone who's standing on Israel's behalf as, as the true son of God, one who will not disobey his father. Now, there's a second point to make from this. I think it's absolutely crucial. It's important to understand what Matthew meant by tempted. The word for tempted can also mean tested. The devil tempts, God tests. And here's the kicker. It often happens in the same event. The devil tempts, God tests. Let's be clear here. God leads no one to sin, right? James 1 says that he can tempt and does not tempt anyone into rebellion. So we cannot say that God tempts. But scripture is absolutely clear. God is sovereign over the devil's tricks and schemes. God uses them for a redemptive purpose. While the devil is trying to use temptation to bring about rebellion, God uses it as a test for revelation. 
That is this, simply this, through temptation, through testing, a person's true metal is revealed. Who you really are is exposed in times of testing and temptation. It's a, cruci- it's a crucible, a, 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 a hot pot of fiery tests to show what's really inside of you, whether it be sin or righteousness. And we've got to understand this. In in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God says that he led Israel into the wilderness to be tested to what end? To know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. So in the end, the wilderness testing proved that sin still resided in Israel's heart and that they not only did not but could not obey God's law. This testing that we see in Matthew 4, however, is going to reveal something entirely different. Namely, that when Jesus is tested, when Satan tempts him, Satan himself, the champion devil, when he himself faces off with Jesus, Jesus is proven to be absolutely, perfectly righteous through and through, inside and out. Now, that being said, the Spirit leads Jesus into this necessary crucible where God's declaration of Jesus being the God-pleasing Son would be proven to be true here in the wilderness. What God proclaimed at the Jordan River would be verified here in this nasty, dry, sandy desert region with Jesus all alone between him and the serpent himself. Now, as a side note, as I'm reading this, I, I couldn't help but asking, what does my crucible moments prove about me? What does my times of tempting and testing prove about me? It's easy to blame the devil for our sin, isn't it? And yet we forget that temptation only seeks to draw out the sinful desire within. Really what this testing moment in Matthew 4 is trying to do is Satan is trying to find something inside of Jesus that is sinful and to draw out that desire. And here's the kicker. He finds nothing. But for us, it's totally different. Satan doesn't just tempt us with things outside of us. Satan tempts us with things inside of us. He tries to draw out what is inside. If we fall to temptation, it is because the enemy was able to play on our internal affections, our love for comfort, our love for security, our love for popularity, our love for pleasure, our affection for self-exaltation, and so on and so on. No temptation, I want you to hear this, no temptation can lead us where our sinful hearts, at least in part, do not want to go. I'm not trying to release the devil of responsibility here. It's just we're not so innocent as we might think. We have sinful desires at play Within us, the temptation to lust after a woman at work is actually a temptation to pursue our love of pleasure. It would feel good. It feels right. It looks good. Touch and have your delight. I mean, it just, this is pursuit of absolute pleasure and our love for pleasure. The temptation to get angry and irritable with my spouse may be a temptation to pursue my love to control things and have respect. As a parent, the temptation to get frustrated with our kids may be a temptation to protect our love for comfort and ease. I mean, surely 
we knew it would be easier, right, having kids? I mean, what did we expect? Of course they poop in the floor. And yet, at some moment, there's something that Satan draws out in us that tests our, that tempts us with our own simple desires. We wanted to sit in the love chair and watch the football game. And I had to get up and stop brother from hitting sissy. Come on, don't you know this is my time? Satan draws that out. Temptation in its real skin is a battle over the affections of your heart. It's a battle over what you love. And the only way to defeat temptation is a greater love for God that expulses the idolatrous love for self. This is what Thomas Chalmers, one of my favorite Puritan writers, referred to as the expulsive power of a greater affection. How do you defeat your love for sin? How do you defeat your love for pleasure that keeps bringing you back to the drugs or to the sex addictions or the pornography? How do you beat... The, the love for comfort that keeps you lazy or, or self-serving rather than serving your family. Well, it's to gain a greater affection for God that then expulses the lesser love. This truth about temptation, and I, and I, I take this little digression about, I take this little uh, side note, this excursus, excursus on temptation so that you will understand the beauty of what Christ does here. If temptation searches for a sinful desire within to draw it out, for a love that competes with our love for God, what does Jesus' testing and temptation prove about him? He loved God better than any other human being on earth ever in the history of humanity. No human ever had a greater affection for God than Christ himself. The beloved Son of God loved his Father with a perfect love, Perfect love. He had no sinful desires because he wanted nothing more than to please his father. And that's what makes him beautiful. That's what makes him glorious. That's what makes him majestic is that we have here in our champion one who loves God perfectly and better than any of us could ever begin to imagine loving God. And by that love for God, he defeats sin, forsakes even love for himself, forsakes even love for his own comfort, forsakes love even for his own safety and security to pursue a greater love for God, even if it means being led to the cross. Now, if you don't understand temptation like that, you don't, don't understand what Satan's actually playing at here in the wilderness. And so that's why all of that is important to understand what kind of battle Jesus is in here with the serpent. Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is a lot like our battles with temptation, but his battle was far greater in significance. It was far more important. Here, we had the, the, the entire fate of the world at stake. It's difficult to describe just how much was at stake. What, what, what if this story was a little bit different? What if we changed just a few details? What if Jesus just caved in just a little? My friends, redemption would have never been accomplished. 
Humanity would have continued in its fallen state. So much at stake here. At the baptism, God declared Jesus to be his son and indicated that his son was also the suffering servant. And so the royal son and the righteous sufferer were one and the same person in Christ. Now, it's no coincidence that all three of Satan's temptations incite Jesus to prove that he is the son, but in the process to deny the suffering servant. This revolutionized my understanding of Satan's temptations. I always thought of his temptations as silly, funny. But really, what's, what's at stake here is he tempts Jesus to prove that he is the king of all by denying the sacrificial service. He offers Jesus in his temptations the throne without the crown of thorns. He offers Jesus kingship, pleasure, comfort, ease, self-exaltation, glory among men, all the things we desire without all the things we hate. He uses the phrase, if you are the Son of God. And in, the, in doing so, he's attempting Jesus, he's attempting to lure Jesus down a road to the Davidic throne without suffering. It's interesting that later on the cross in Matthew 27, the Pharisees take up Satan's words. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Everything Satan's doing here, every bait, every lure is seeking to give Jesus a crossless crown so that redemption could be undone. Had Jesus taken any one of these temptations, it would have been an absolute, complete repudiation of God's plan for redemption. Because God's plan was not a king who would not suffer. God's plan was not a king who would go down a road of prosperity. God's king was not a, a, a king who would sit. God's plan was not a king that would sit on a throne of gold with a crown of gold and servants all around him. God's plan was a king who would be a servant, who would wash the feet of his people, who would bleed, die, carry his own cross for yours and I's salvation. So, that's how we understand the temptations. Now let's prove it. Is it actually true that every one of these temptations are seeking to get Jesus to be the king without the suffering? To be the king and to deny the suffering servant part of his calling. The first temptation is described in verses 2 and 3. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That makes sense. I've never fasted for four hours. I fasted from food before, and I guarantee it was the worst suffering of my life. Um, but here we got a guy who's suffering for 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry. Makes sense. Uh, the understatement of a century. He hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Fasting 40 days would have led to great discomfort, a hunger stronger than any of us have ever experienced. 
About this time, the body begins to actually shut down. The extremities are weak and begin to shake, just uncontrollably. The body feels like it's, the, the, the stomach feels like it's eating itself, and it's just kind of imploding, shrinking. It's not too uncommon for someone who's gone without food for this long to just pass out randomly. Not to mention he's in the heat of the desert, and I've been there. It's hot, 110 degrees easily in the middle of the day, and freezing at night. And so he's staying in these extreme conditions, shaking, convulsing, possibly passing out, stomach shrinking and imploding, shaking, shivering. My friends, this was suffering. At its finest. Most of us could hardly blame Jesus had he done what Satan suggested. I mean, seriously, what's wrong with turning a few stones into bread? He's got the ability to do so. Surely we can't say that it would be sinful for Jesus to feed himself. Right? What makes it so sinful? What makes this an actual temptation? I mean, this just seems like common sense. You're hungry, Jesus. You've gone so long without food. Now eat. Well, the answer to the question is embedded in Satan's words. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Satan's temptation was not simply that Jesus feed himself. His temptation was for Jesus to prove that he was the son of God by ending his discomfort from suffering. By, By... Ending his hunger pains, even as insignificant as that might be, this would have set Jesus on a trajectory to pick the road of least resistance. You're hurting, Jesus. You're hungry. You're shaking. You're passing out. Your stomach is in pain. Just end it. You can. You have the power to. Get out of it. Now, this might seem small and insignificant, but it actually shows the very fiber of who Jesus is. He's not just the Son of God who has the power to, to make a mountain into an entire loaf of bread. He's not just the Son of God who can do that. He's also the suffering servant who will not reject suffering, even the smallest suffering, on our behalf. He will suffer stomach pain to obey God. Can you imagine having the right and the ability? You are king of creation, royal heir to the throne of heaven. You have the absolute ability to turn rocks into bread. You are starving to death, and you can end it. If he did this, then what's to keep him later in the garden from calling legions down from heaven to end his suffering? If he did this and ended this minor suffering, then what's to keep him on the cross when they say, if you're the son of God, take yourself down. You have the ability to. You have the power. Everything Satan is doing is a desperate attempt to get Jesus to leave behind the suffering servant role because that's the role by which Satan would find his destruction. He's not so worried about the kingship. He's worried about the suffering servant because he knows that his head will be bruised 
after he bruises the heel of the Son of Man. If he can get the Son of Man to deny the bruising of his own heel, he doesn't have a crushed head. Self-preservation. Jesus knew all this, I think. Which is why he answers Satan by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, <coughs> but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3 in its context speaks of God's faithfulness to his people in the wilderness. And highlights the importance of obeying God's commands. In this way... Jesus shows that the real proof of sonship is not an attempt to miraculously escape discomfort, but to obey the word of God, even if that obedience will lead to his discomfort or death. By refusing Satan's temptation, Jesus showed his resolve to prove his sonship by being the faithful servant who does not avoid suffering, he would not even end his hunger pain and enjoy the benefits of being the Son of God. He would embrace suffering. And so, this first crucible, as minor as it may seem, proves that Jesus will not be the Davidic Son, the royal king, without first being the suffering servant. Second, the next temptation is in the same vein. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan hears Jesus' quotation of Deuteronomy. He knows that Jesus knows the Bible. And he says, Great, you want to use the Bible? Here's Psalm 91. I raise your Deuteronomy 8 and give you Psalm 91. To further bolster the temptation. The devil knows how to twist scripture to justify submission to his seduction, right? We can all point to scripture that might somehow justify some kind of sin. We can all do that. Satan's done that. Psalm 91, in context, is absolutely right in the way that that Satan is using it here. It's about God's love for his people. And he expresses that love by protecting them from harm. In the psalm, God is a refuge and a fortress, protects them from danger. He delivers his people from the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He is a shield and buckler. It even says that 10,000 will fall at the righteous one's right side, but it will not come near him. And then comes the phrase that Satan here quotes. That God will command his angels concerning his people, and they will guard him, and their foot will not even strike a stone. In other words, they won't even stump their toe. Sounds like a great psalm, doesn't it? Here's what Satan's doing. He's enticing Jesus to test the Father's love for him by seeing if the Father will keep him back from harm. By seeing if the Father will keep him back from suffering. Does the Father love him enough to protect him from suffering and death? According to Satan, there's only one way to prove that Jesus is indeed the beloved royal son of God. That is by throwing himself off the the southeast corner of the temple there into the valley uh, of Jehoshaphat and to test God's promise of deliverance. Once again, it's a temptation to prove his sonship 
without suffering. It's another ploy to try to get Jesus to be the son without dying. To be the son without sacrificially giving up his life. It would have been the opposite of what God had planned. Jesus knew that the ultimate proof of his sonship would not be through a miraculous deliverance from suffering before going through it. Instead, he knew that he would be proven to be the Son of God through suffering, through death, and then at the resurrection. He knew that there was a road he must cross. It wasn't deliverance before suffering and death. It was a deliverance after suffering and death. He knew the progression. He knew the, the promise. He knew what God was calling him to. In John eight twenty eight, Jesus tells the angry crowds, you want to know when I'm the son of man? You want to know when you're going to know that I am the son of man? He says this, when you have lifted up the son of man, you will know that I am he. In other words, when you nail him on the cross, you will know that he is the royal son of God. Romans 1 picks up the same thing when it says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by, guess what? Not by his deliverance from death on the cross, but by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. And that's proof. That's vindication that he is the Son of God. That's all the proof that he needs. Satan here is saying, you don't need to suffer. Just throw yourself down. Let God deliver you from suffering and prove that you are the beloved Son. And Jesus will not have it. The true test then in all of this is not whether God loves his Son to keep him from pain. The true test is whether the Son loves his Father enough to trust and obey him, even to the point of suffering on a cross. Jesus passed this test. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to test. Jesus knew that he was the beloved son. I think he knew Genesis 3.15. That says that his heel must be bruised as he bruises and crushes the head of the serpent. Now here's the irony of Satan's use of Psalm 91. He stops one verse short. One verse short of the great redemptive promise. He quotes 11 and 12. That's what he wants Jesus to hear. But he forgets that Jesus was there when verse 13 was written, which says this, you will tread, you will walk on, you will stomp on the lion and the adder. It was an adder. It's a snake. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. The great irony of it all is he uses a passage to try to get Jesus to give up verse 13. He uses 11 and 12 so that verse 13 might not come true. And yet in it all, God proves his love to his son by helping him crush the head of the serpent, by rejecting Satan's lies, not rejecting the cross, not despising his suffering, and crushing the head of the serpent and dying in the process. Amazing sovereignty there in it all. I just, I just think it's funny. Satan's a smart dude. 
It would have been absolutely humorous to hear him begin to quote verse 13. Go, oh, oh, I didn't mean for you to hear that. But that's the, the, that's the point of Psalm 91. Is that God's real test of love for his servant will be when the servant crushes the head of the adder. When the servant walks over the serpent underfoot. And that's only going to happen through the cross. Now, it seems clear that Satan's temptations are gradually increasing in their intensity. He offers him something minor first. He offers Jesus to end some minor hunger pains. Escape this little suffering. Get out of this little hardship. And then he increases it next to, how do you know the Father really loves you? Would the Father actually let his son suffer and die? Let's put him to the test and see if it delivers you. Well, now we have the third temptation, which is an outright desperate attempt to get Jesus to reject the cross. Here's what he says. Here's what it says. <clears throat> Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Here Satan offers Jesus most, in the most explicit way possible the Davidic crown without the sacrificial suffering. Jesus could gain worldwide dominion without having to die for it. All he has to do is to take a little bow. Just kneel once. There's not even this idea of a continual worship of Satan. It's just, just this once. You can have redemption's goal, which is for Christ to be king over all things, but you don't have to die for it. It's a bloodless coronation. That's what he offers here. It's easy for us to look at this and say, come on, Satan, who do you think Jesus is? is it, we, we belittle the temptation. We think, come on, that's the best you can do. What does Satan think he's asking? Surely he knows that the Son of God will never bow. And yet, sadly, as ironic as this is, we, as God's children, have often bowed to Satan's will to achieve self-promotion and self-exaltation. And we do so more than we care to admit. It may seem funny and absurd for Jesus to bow down for Satan, to Satan and to do Satan's will. And yet, this is the very thing God's children, like me, tend to do on a regular basis. How often have we submitted to Satan's tactics? Accusing others, backbiting, gossiping, to get ahead in life or to further the dominion of our own popularity. How often have we stood as the accuser in somebody else's life? How often have we been quick to point out all the sins and failures of those around us? Not too unlike the accuser himself standing before the throne of God accusing us. How often have we bowed the knee to pride or arrogance in order to crown ourselves, right? With a sense of superiority over others. We don't like it when other people have more stuff. We don't like it when people seem more important. We don't like it when people's praises are sung more than ours. And so, we bow the knee. Yes, Satan, I'll take the glory now. How often have we done it? How often have we bowed the knee to temptation for the sake of convenience so that we could have lesser glory? 
How often have we bowed the knee to things like porn? Things like being hateful to our wife or our husband. How often have we done these things to protect our own dominion rather than suffering for those around us? Rather than bearing the cross? Rather than walking in other people's stead? Here Jesus is offered the glory of the nations and he can have it all. No cross, no Roman government, no nails in his wrists, no whip on his back, no crown of thorns, no bloodshed. Just for a little bow. Doesn't seem so crazy now, does it? I'm not so certain that I would have had the strength to say no. And yet to bow and to take the crown Satan offered would have been to abandon God's design. God's ordained path to Christ's global dominion and glory was through the cross. It was not exaltation, period. It was instead exaltation through humiliation. Exaltation through suffering. This path would ultimately lead to all the nations Worshipping God, not his enemy. It would lead to all the nations giving glory to the Son. But it would be blood-bought. It would be done through a cross. It would be done through splinters. It would be done through suffering. It would be done through hardship. Not through ease. And it is to this end that Jesus stayed committed to his resolve. Moments before his death on the cross, Jesus openly said about the hour of crucifixion, keep in mind, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glory through death. The road to the crown was through the cross and not away from it. It was a road that led to Jesus' reign, the Father's glory, in Jesus' suffering. Now this is why at this moment Jesus has the ability to say, Deuteronomy 6.13, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In this, Jesus declared that he would serve none other but his Father, which meant following the Father's sovereign plan for the Son's own suffering, death, and resurrection. Now, Matthew's temptation scene ends with the devil leaving Jesus and angels coming to minister to him. Jesus' wilderness testing proved that he is indeed the Son of God, but not just the Son of God. He was the Son of God who had came also to be the suffering servant. According to Isaiah 53, he who knew no sin, he who had done no violence, he who had no deceit in his mouth would die for the unrighteous so that by his righteous death, the many would be accounted to be righteous. That was the plan. He was to stick with it, and he did. My friends, the cross was no surprise to Jesus. In his greatest moment of weakness, in his greatest moment of hunger, in the wilderness with no one else to bolster him up, Jesus looked ahead to the cross. And embraced it still. He had a greater love for his God. And a greater love for us. 
as those who would be redeemed through his suffering. Then he had a love for his own comfort and ease. Now to me, that just, that stirs my heart to think that in the wilderness, greater love is what pushed out these lesser comforts. This easier path. I might have had a king had he taken this road. But I don't think I would have had a high priest. I might have had a king, but I wouldn't have had the Passover lamb. Israel's filled with history of having kings, but no sacrifice. Having kings, but no high priest who is righteous. Having kings, but having no one to stand on their stead. Having kings, but no one who is righteous to stand before the throne of God above. This was not the way redemption was to work. And so Christ embraced God's plan and continued on. This is our Savior, the sinless Son of God who suffers for us. Now, scholars and commentators debate whether this was an actual temptation. Could Jesus actually have sinned if he wanted to? I think that goes beyond the point of what Matthew is trying to say here. Matthew seems to assume that Jesus stood before Satan as man, as a God-man in particular, just like Adam stood before Satan as man. And he faces temptation, and yet the good news of the gospel is that he personally defeated the serpent that Adam listened to. He personally drove out the serpent in the wilderness that Adam chose to believe. Now this has ongoing ramifications in the lives of believers. First and foremost, it means that we have both king and a servant. He is our king and our servant. He's our servant king. It means that we have a great high priest. Now, here's the awkward elephant in the room. Even as believers who have trusted in Jesus, there are times we still listen to Satan's schemes. We fall to temptations like this all the time. A childhood pastor of mine used to describe Jesus as if he was in heaven shaking his head at all our sins and failures. Just condescending. He kept a track of everything you had done. He could be hurt. And then I remember as a child listening to this and and imagining Jesus saying this to me. After all I've done for you, I'm so embarrassed. Disappointed. You've let me down. And for years, that was my vision of God in heaven. I was a growing teenager and battling temptation and lust and sin and getting hammered day after day after day in a household filled with grief. Brother had just died. Parents were grieving and broken, yelling at dad, yelling at mom, mom yelling back. It was just a broken household. And afterwards, after sin, after sin, after sin, feeling like I couldn't even pray to my God because he didn't want to speak to me. I let him down. Man, I was 17 in a college dorm room, facing temptation again, decided to open up my Bible, read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 16, and changed my life. 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Listen to this. For we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect had been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What then? That's the question I've been asking. What then? So he beat it, and I can't. What then? I can't talk to someone so holy. I can't talk to someone so righteous. I can't talk to someone so perfect. Surely he doesn't want me. He's too good for me. Listen to the rest of the Hebrew. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. From then on out, when sin came knocking at the door, I didn't have to wait 48 hours of self-flagellation and punishment in order to pray. I didn't have to hide away in a corner of the room, put my Christianity on hold, I didn't have to stand under the shaking head of an angry, disappointed father. Jesus was not embarrassed of me anymore. And it set me free. There is now no condemnation for me. Because I am in Christ. He doesn't shake his head. He doesn't cross his arms. He doesn't say that he's embarrassed of me. He says I am redeemed and justified in him. Therefore draw near I can come moments after my hands have committed sin. I can come moments after my eyes have taken in things that I shouldn't have taken in. I could come moments after my mind and my mouth said things that shouldn't have been said. After my heart loved things that shouldn't have been loved. And I can draw near to the throne of grace. And guess what will I find there? Mercy. This doesn't mean that God doesn't care about sin. He is holy and he will discipline his children. God will not let his children continue in sin unhindered. He will poke, he will prod, he will nudge. He may even hammer at you to get you out of your sin. That is proof of love, not punishment. That is proof of discipline from a father who cares. But there are some of you in here today that have just been hammered in your sins, secret sins. You don't want to tell anybody else. I'm going over time, just so you know. Secret sins, you wouldn't dare to say to someone else. You've not been able to escape them for years. It just seems like a normal part of your life now. Surely everybody else would condemn you for it. Surely Jesus is embarrassed about it. My friends, at this moment, Hebrews calls you to draw near. You'll find mercy. And guess what? The promise is that you'll find mercy and grace to help in time of need. You know what that means? This is a future-looking grace. You'll find mercy for the sins you've committed. You'll find mercy for your acts of rebellion. And then he'll give you grace to help you when that sin comes knocking out the door again. To help you out of it when you need help in time of need. 
He can, he has, and he will deliver you from slavery to sin. Need only draw near. He will not let you stay in your sin. But he is the champion who will set you free from it if you come. Now, the second side of that, the other side of that, means that Jesus serves as a standard of what our love for God should look like. It is a love that is willing to fight sin even to the point of death. I mean, think about that kind of great love. Now, now we can't look at sin. We can't look at pornography. We can't look at the lady in yoga pants at Starbucks. We can't look at our, our spouse's irritable moments. We can't look at those things in the same way. Because of the great grace and love, we now do things differently. Because we have a great God who serves as a high priest. It is because Christ defeats sin, and because Christ has defeated your sin, and because Christ can defeat your sin if you draw near, that you're invited to join in the victory. You're invited to crush the same sins that Jesus has already crushed. You are invited to beat the fallen foe, to walk over the dead body of sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 4, draws our eyes to Jesus and says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you, may, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You know what he's saying here? In context, he's encouraging Christians who are about to give up. There's so many, there's so many persecutions happening on in the, going on in the time. Timothy's in jail. Paul is probably dead. Peter, who knows where Peter is? He's probably still hanging upside down on the cross at this time. Surely it's time to give up. Let's just, let's just flake out. Let's curse God and die is kind of the idea here. And yet the author of Hebrews says, no, don't placate. What kind of motivation do we have to fight sin? Well, we have the motivation of one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We can endure because Christ endured. We can win because our champion has won. Goliath is dead. Now let us make slaves of our sin and kill him. What applied to Christians who are being tempted to recant their faith applies to you who are being tempted to faithless acts of sin. The enemy will barrage you with all kinds of morale-draining questions. Why suffer? Why withhold from yourself? Why not just give in to sin? It doesn't really matter. Nobody's really being hurt by it. People don't even know. Why deprive yourself from the easy road? Why do things like put covenant eyes on your phone or get rid of the computer? Why, why do things like, like try to really hard to keep your mouth shut instead of griping at your wife? Why, why suffer with that? Why die for others? Why bear crosses for other people? Why deprive yourself from physical pleasure, from people's praise, from personal exaltation? Why starve yourselves of all the tasty delights of sin? And at that moment, you may be saying, you're right, I'm tired of this fight. 
I'm weary. It's at that moment that the author of Hebrews whispers to you and points out to the one who endured for your sake so that now you may endure the battle against sin. If you are tired, look to him who has won. If you're tired of fighting, consider who will be standing when the battle is completely over. Aslan, in this really nerdy analogy of Narnia, Aslan has roared, the witch is dead. Keep fighting. So there's where we're at. Our king shedding his own blood, suffering for us so that we may suffer in our own victorious fight with sin. In Matthew, the serpent faces off with Eve's long-awaited opponent. But Satan does not find just another Adam. He finds the last Adam. He finds his own death. He finds an Adam that will do what the first Adam should have done. This Adam drives out the serpent. Whereas the first Adam let him stay. In the wilderness here in Matthew 4, Jesus began to win back our garden presence of God. In the wilderness, our new Adam proved himself to be the better Adam, the greater Adam, and by going on the road to the cross, began to lead the way back to Eden. And sin's hold on the world was beginning to weaken. My friends, I just want to give you an opportunity today to find freedom from sin. It is a big deal. It is soul-draining, and it is sucking you dry. If you'd like to pray with someone who cares about scandals and stuff like that, if someone treats you like a scandal, they need to come pray and repent too. Come and pray and find deliverance from your sin because Christ, your Savior, has defeated Satan definitively on the cross and you are now free. And he whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. Elders, if you'll go to the back, take your wife so that they can pray with ladies. We have private places all over this church. We did the expansion just so you'd have places to pray with people. So please do not leave this place without applying it. Finding prayer for your own weakness and coming and drawing near to the great high priest who has died for you. Let's pray. God has people... Think and ponder on this message. I pray against people's uh, hearts that whisper to them, they don't need to know. You've been forgiven. It's no big deal. Just keep going. Keep plotting away. God, I pray that you will silence Satan. And that at this moment, you will prepare your bride at Grace Church just a little bit more for a spotless and pure wedding day. Help us, Father, right now as a corporate body to repent and to seek the cleansing which our own hands cannot do. Thank you that we have a great high priest. Thank you that Jesus stands as our champion, our big brother, the master, the stronger one, the Lord who has defeated an enemy that we could not beat. Pray for real faith and action today. In the name of Jesus, amen.